Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Sean Kappas. Um, I just finished serving a three-year term as an elder here, and I'm pleased to uh, preach through 1 Samuel 17 here this morning. We've been working through uh, 1 Samuel, and um, I think that this is probably a passage that's very familiar to people, but uh, as we only read a selection of the text, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible or if there's you, know, you want to grab one that's under the chairs, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along as as we go through it. Um, but first, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that we can come before you, um, the great God of the world and of the universe, and we can read your word, hear it, and um, that we can understand it because you have been kind to put it in our language. Think of the Jose family and their work in translating um, the Punjabi Bible, and I pray that you would be pleased to cause your word to go forth um, to all the um, tribes and tongues and nations around the world so that your word might be heard, um, that the word of Christ might be known, and that Jesus might be worshiped and adored. And I pray that this would be true for us here today, that we would hear about you, our great King, and that we would um, grow in love for Christ. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us more like him, and you would help me to explain your word well today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the tale of David and Goliath is probably one that you have heard if you've been in the church for any period of time, or even uh, you've heard it referenced, even if you haven't been in the church, because it's particularly a very popular uh, thing to use in sporting events where they compare one, one team to David and one day, team to Goliath. And so uh, you've probably heard it enough that perhaps uh, rather than it being a compelling narrative, the idea of a David and Goliath is a bit of, could even feel like a tired cliche. And yet, this is something that gets used over and over and over to describe interactions between people and groups um, when someone who's weaker manages to defy the odds and emerge victorious. And so I want to ask the question, do people like these stories because they're just bitter at someone who's bigger and stronger or because they have an insatiable appetite for the new and unexpected and so they're excited when something unusual happens? I think maybe there's a little bit of that, but I think that um, there's something more to it. And that's because uh, God uh, chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that comes for, from 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29. I think God has made all human beings to enjoy these type of stories because ultimately they point us to his power and strength even if we frequently only see the human actors at play. And so I pray, I pray that um, today that God would give us eyes of faith to see as we pull back the curtain and see a faithful king who delivers his people. And so that's the main point of my sermon here today. The, the faithful king delivers his people. And the first point is uh, from a powerful and defiant enemy. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 here first. So chapter 17, Jonathan just read it for us, opens with the Philistine army invading part of Israel. 
So the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in, in Judah. They pitched camp in Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. So if you'll recall when we were back in uh, 1 Samuel 14, uh, there's a, they have a big victory over the Philistines, but then Saul uh, makes this rash vow that people won't eat and they actually... Uh, Jonathan criticizes him because they don't defeat the Philistines as soundly as they could have because of Saul making, uh, saying, we're not going to eat until I'm avenged, which just ends up tiring people out. And so now uh, the Philistines, who they could have defeated more soundly, are on their doorstep in, uh, in the land of Judah, um, and they're boldly invading Israel. And so they bring forth this champion in Goliath who is described in uh, a rather terrifying fashion. So if you'll look at verses 4 through 7, see some of the descriptions that are given here. He's uh, described to be six cubits in a span, which is be about nine feet, nine inches tall. So for perspective, I'm about six foot six. So you can picture someone three feet taller than me. Um, um, his armor weighs 5,000 shekels, which is around 125 pounds. And he has a very thick handled spear, which is described like a weaver's beam. Probably would have been about maybe this thick, maybe thicker because the head of the spear is about 16 pounds. So think like the weight of a heavy bowling ball on the end of this spear. And this is, he's not just holding it to intimidate people. If he has it, he can actually use something that big and that heavy to fight people. Um, and so then he has a javelin strapped to his back, and we know later that he's got a sword as well because David describes him as coming at him later with a sword and a spear and a javelin. So not only is he well-armed, he's well-armored. He's described with a bronze helmet, and he has a coat of mail of bronze, which literally translates as a clothed with scales, and I'll get to more of that later, but it was a common kind of scale armor that he would have been wearing. And then he has bronze armor even all the way down his legs. And so this is a man who is so huge and powerful that he carries what's probably the weight of a normal person simply in his, like, like the weight of another person with him in his arm, armor and his armaments. Um, and so this is the guy who's coming out with the challenge in verses 8 through 11. And so he comes out and he shouts to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then, they, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you, we, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath makes this offer, right? Uh, rather than the whole army's fighting and lots of people dying, he says, you bring a champion forth, fight me, and whoever wins, the loser will be your servant. And so it's not really clear why he makes this um, this offer, whether like maybe they're very evenly matched and maybe even the Philistines are afraid of losing or 
committing too much into fighting in the territory of Israel, but he makes the offer nonetheless. And what really matters about the offer is that everyone, including their king Saul, is too terrified to do anything or to face Goliath. Um, so let's recall that Saul was described as being a head taller than all of Israel, and he's proven himself as a mighty warrior. Um, suddenly, the Philistines bring out a guy who's mightier and taller than him. And so they're, they're, uh, it's pretty clear that Goliath expects Saul to be the one who's going to come out and fight him. And not only that, the people of Israel are expecting this as well because um, what they say to Samuel in chapter 8, 19 and 20 is, there shall be a king over us that we, may, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this is why Saul was king in the first place is he's going out to do this. This is what the people of Israel want. But, and not only that, he's done it in the past. Um, if you recall uh, my sermon from a couple weeks ago on 1 Samuel 11, uh, uh, he, he does something very similar. And I'll read the setting, um, the first four verses of that real quick here. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Um, but Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring a disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let a, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Uh, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So I think that I'm reading this because I think that the, the person who put together 1 Samuel um, was making a clear parallel between what happens in chapter 11 and what's happening in chapter 17. And so I'd like to point out a couple of similarities here. Uh, you might pick up on some more if you remember 1 Samuel 11, or if you want to go back and look at it later, it might be helpful. Um, but uh, firstly, this foe is so terrifying, Nahash in chapter 11, people don't want to go out and fight him. They very quickly want to make a treaty with him. Um, but second, the cost of, of losing to Nahash and to Goliath is serving the enemy, serving someone who's evil. Um, thirdly, Saul is the king in both cases. Um, and so you would think, okay, Saul's already kind of dealt with this sort of thing before. Why is he cowering? But we, uh, I'm going to come back to that. But I want to make another connection here. So perhaps if you were here, you might remember Patrick Haven's sermon of 1 Samuel 12, where he pointed out that the word treaty that they have with, um, that they offered to have with Nahash would, could mean a covenant. And he made the point that the people of Jabesh Gilead were looking to make a covenant with someone other than God or a treaty for their salvation. And he rightly called it a deal with the devil. This is because, um, and I didn't, I didn't want to uh, go too deep into Genesis 3 in that sermon, but um, the name Nahash literally means snake. So it's the same word that was translated serpent in Genesis 3. And um, particularly interestingly, it's the same root word that's used for bronze in Goliath's armor as well. 
Um, so remember that I said his armor is literally translated as being clothed with scales. Um, perhaps in the moment, right, the people who are in this narrative right now, they're drawing up lines of battle. They're not thinking, oh, this guy is a giant snake. But the, he is described in such detail, and there's such parallels between chapter 11, that I believe that the intention for the readers of 1 Samuel was for them to catch these connections. And they would see that there's a lot more going on here beyond just this physical battle of tall guy versus tall guy. Um, there's a spiritual dimension here where a representative of Satan is taunting and defying God's people. But instead of Saul going out and fighting this foe, he's cowering with the rest of Israel. Uh, if you, in chapter 11, the Spirit of God rushed on him mightily, and he went out and fought. But in chapter 16, the Spirit of God, who had empowered Saul to win this, against this serpent king Nahash, had departed from him, and instead David has been anointed, and the Spirit has rushed upon him powerfully. Um, and so this is where the narrative moves next in verse 12. So we're reminded in verse 12 that David is the eighth son of Jesse of Bethlehem and Judah, which is right near where the armies are gathered. Um, Jesse is too old to fight, but his three oldest sons have been conscripted into Saul's service and are with him full time. So even though David is Saul's armor bearer and his personal musician, I guess you'd say it is. Uh, verse 15 still says that he goes back and forth between being a shepherd and being in the employ of Saul. And so it's kind of interesting that uh, in, in chapter 11, Saul was anointed king and he goes back to farming and David has been anointed king and he's still kind of going back and forth um, with his shepherding duties, even though he would have perfectly good reason to always hang around at court and enjoy the luxuries of that. Um, he's still um, helping his father. And so Jesse's sons have been out in the Valley of Elah for 40 days, and Jesse decides to send David with some supplies for his brothers, uh, cheese for their commander, and the task to find out how his brothers are doing. He tells him to go quickly, so David rises early the next morning, leaves the sheep in the care of the keeper, and he sets out. And he arrives just in time for the armies to be going up to battle, um, is, is what it says, and, um, and he uh, obediently speeds to see his brothers uh, in the ranks to follow what his, his father has said. And so it's not really clear whether this is kind of the custom every day, because it, it seems like there's a lot more like fighting language if you're looking at like verses 20 through 24 than what's described in the initial challenge. So it's not clear like, you know, they, they've waited 40 days. Nobody has, has agreed uh, to send a challenger. So maybe they're actually gearing up to actually battle rather than doing the whole champion versus champion thing. Um, but what really matters is that Goliath comes out offers his defiance of Israel again. And um, even though the people of Israel had issued a war cry as they're going out, they retreat with a whimper before a sword is even swung. And so they're in desperate need of someone to save them. And so the faithful king delivers his people first from a powerful and defiant enemy and now second, uh, despite discouragement. Uh, so we're looking at verses 25 through 37 here. And so after they retreat, the men 
of the army begin discussing Goliath. And it says, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So there's a number of very motivating things as far as why you would consider going and being Saul's champion, right? He's great riches, marriage into the kingly line, uh, and your whole family being free in Israel, which meant being free from paying taxes, from your family being conscripted into the military service, from uh, the king being able to basically take and take and take all the things that are listed in 1 Samuel 8. Um, and so it makes you wonder, right, why is Saul so motivated to give such a great bounty for the defeat of Goliath instead of doing it himself? And why has not a single Israelite in all these 40 days not come out and said, that's a pretty great offer on the table. I see this big lumbering hulk and maybe, maybe I can beat him. Well, I think one thing is that I think we might envision Goliath is this huge guy with giant armor and he's we could think, oh, like he must not look very capable or something like that. And so someone might say, oh, I'm quicker and stronger, maybe I can beat him. But nobody has come up with that. So I think that Goliath is not just gigantic. He's not a lumbering oaf. He looks like just a giant warrior. So it's, um, um, uh, I, sorry, I lost my spot there. But um, uh, so after 40 days of Goliath going out twice, they're no more emboldened to face him. And in fact, it seems like they're probably just as scared, if not more so. But you think about, what about promises from God, like in Leviticus 26, where he promised that five will chase 100 and 100, and 100 will chase 10,000 if they have faith in him? Or what about the fact that Joshua destroys the Anakim giants in Joshua 11? So People of Israel already have a history of trusting in him to defeat giants. Um, so God has been faithful to help his people in the past, but it's clear that the men of Israel and the king of Israel don't have faith in him to do so right now. But David has a different reaction. He asks the question, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so David, he's only been in the camp just a very brief time. He already understands um, the stakes here. He understands that Goliath's defiance of the armies of the living God isn't just about a reproach on Israel and making them look bad as a country. It is an insult against their God. And so that's why his reaction is not just, uh, how could anyone defeat this man? It's, who's this guy and who's going to step up and fight him? Like, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Who does he think he is? That's David's reaction rather than... Um, uh, being swept along in the discouragement and the despondency of the rest of the army. And so he continues uh, talking with the men in the army about this until his older brother Eliab hears. I'll say, frankly, like his brother's response is pretty sad. Um, so you, if you look at what he says, he's, he accuses David of being irresponsible, presumptive, and evil. Um, but David... It says that he had found a keeper for the sheep. So it's not like he just abandoned the sheep. 
Second, he's there at his father's ordering. He didn't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to be a shepherd this morning, like Eliab is accusing him of. He's there because his uh, father told him. And not only that, he was told to come find his brothers in the battle line because his father wants him to speak to his brothers, make sure they're okay, and check in on them. Um, and so uh, Eliab claims wrongly to know David's heart. And at the same time, we now see the heart that God saw when he rejected Eliab in chapter 8, 16. So if, you were, uh, uh, if you'll recall, he, he actually explicitly says rejected, which is the same language that's used of Saul about Eliab. It's not just like he passed him over and he was looking for a different son. He was explicitly rejected. Um, uh, so perhaps oldest brother, he's jealous of being passed over by Samuel. He's jealous of David's position in Saul's court. Um, maybe he's just a spiteful older brother. But I think uh, what's uh, particularly sad here, and it's not the main point of the text, but it shows um, what can happen when someone is bitter and then assumes the motives of someone else. Um, we also see, though, that here a clear connection from David to Jesus. David was anointed right before his own brother. Uh, Eliab has seen, likely, the evidence of David's heart throughout his life. So he doesn't have a good reason, probably, to make these assumptions about David. And yet he's determined to distrust and discourage his younger brother. And consider the likeness to Christ here, who as despite uh, uh, Christ's brothers, despite Jesus being publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit, they treat him similarly. In John 7, 1 through 5, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So you see what's happening here. His brothers are saying, you're a liar. You're a fake. Uh, you have evil and presumption in your heart. They think they know him and they seek to discourage him or to send him to his death. Um, and yet, just as David doesn't go into a long-winded defense of himself, he just says, what did I say? Wasn't it just a word? Um, Christ, Christ's words are largely summed up in the beginning of his response, which is simply, my time has not yet come. So both David and Christ are single-minded in their task, and they will not be taken off course even by their own family discouraging them. Uh, David continues to speak to the men over and over. You see it repeated multiple times about Goliath. And eventually Saul catches wind of it and he calls for David. And David then confidently proclaims to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. So first, uh, let no man's heart. It's not just don't let your heart fail, Saul. David is interested in the heart of all of Israel. Um, so continuing on, your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. Um, so he uh, you would think that this would be a relief to Saul. He's been waiting 40 days for someone to come along. Presumably nobody has come along and said, okay, I'll do this. I'll fight this Philistine. Um, or he would say, 
you know what, David, you're a kid. Um, I've waited long enough. I'll do it. He doesn't do either of those things. He just basically shuts David down. Um, he says, uh, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So it's like you're a kid, and you're still doing kid things in Saul's mind. Um, but he, ever since Goliath was a kid, he was training for this moment to be a warrior. And so Saul's response is not, uh, oh, sorry. Um, but then David doesn't just say, okay, the Lord's just going to help me. He actually says something very interesting, which is God has been equipping him for this moment through his shepherding. So let's look with me at what he says in verses 34 through 37. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So I just want to note a couple of things here. Notice there's a repetition three times of David defeating and being delivered from lions and bears. So he's, he's making it very clear. I've got experience. It might not be the experience that you were expecting. Um, and while I'm not, uh, and while he was the one doing the work, he still credits the Lord with his deliverance. And so God has been equipping him. Um, and uh, now through God's power, he believes that he is fully ready for this task at hand. And so I'd just like to make a brief comment on this. So God often works in this way. Um, sometimes we think God just equips people supernaturally and that for certain, like that's what happened with Saul. I mean, Saul was just a farmer and then the spirit comes upon him and he is suddenly a great military commander. He defeats Nahash. He starts doing all these amazing things. But with David... God has actually not only supernaturally equipped him, but he's also naturally equipped him. He's given him ordinary circumstances in his life to help him to be ready for when he has a very special task that he has to do. And so sometimes we think that there's only certain ways that someone, sometimes ourselves, can be qualified for God's service, but God often uses unexpected ways um, that people can serve him. Uh, I want to be careful we don't draw too, like, too many connections and where everything is like, we're David in this text, because I want, I'll, I'll make it clear that I think it's the, the point of the text is not primarily be like David. Um, but I think this text does confront us with the fact that God is in the habit of not only miraculously changing people, but also using mundane and unusual circumstances to equip, him for, equip them for his service. So perhaps you or someone else you know, needs to hear that message today. So just as God delivered David from the paw or hand, same word, of the lion and the bear, David trusts that God will deliver him from the hand of Goliath as well. Um, so David's argument appears to be enough to persuade Saul because Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. And so 
the faithful king delivers his people from a powerful and defiant enemy, uh, despite discouragement, and now to the glory of God. Um, so we see in verses 38 through 40 that Saul immediately says, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to equip you, David, like I would have equipped myself. So Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So notice here that Saul's armor is depicted similarly uh, to that of Goliath's. And yet David has not just like some spiritual reason, but actually a very human reason that he says, I don't want to wear this. He's simply not comfortable with it. But I think that God uses, it, uses this human reason so that the story, when it gets recounted, shows that David is being distinct from the snake-like Goliath. Um, and so David simply approaches uh, Goliath now armed, if, if you can say that, as a shepherd. So if he wins this fight, it will be abundantly clear that it was through God's help and not by any human means. Even with David's training as a shepherd, the odds still seem hopelessly stacked against him from a purely human perspective. Because you think about it, right, even if he's able to be a little faster than Goliath and run in circles around him, all it takes is one, like one shot from Goliath, who is a skilled warrior, to like, be done with David. So even a, uh, uh, you see then that Goliath comes forward with his shield bearer and is not surprisingly insulted and probably disappointed that it's not Saul um, with who Saul has sent as his champion. So if you'll follow along with me in verses 42 through 47. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear." For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. All right, wow. So these verses, I thought about like these verses practically preach themselves, especially the end. I mean, we know that David has been blessed by God as a brilliant lyricist. We look at the Psalms. But this is like just amazing. Like, I'm just going to flip everything you say on your head, Goliath. He says, you know, you say... I'm coming to you with sticks. 
I see that you're coming to me with sword and spear and javelin. You come cursing me by your gods, but I have come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the true God. So I wonder here, does Goliath know what happened to one of the Philistine gods back in 1 Samuel 5, where they, they brought the ark into the temple of Dagon? The first night, Dagon's fallen, fallen on his face. The second time, Dagon has fallen and his head and his hands have fallen off. Um, uh, David goes on, though, predicting how he will kill Goliath by cutting off his head. And, and rather than just David's body being left for the birds and the beasts of the field, he says that the army of the Philistines will instead suffer that fate, which is interesting, right? Because theoretically, they're going to surrender to him if he wins this fight. It's, it feels like David kind of knows, like this was an empty promise. Goliath was so confident in his own ability that the Philistines never had any intent of actually honoring this vow. He just expected the Israelites to honor it because now David says, now the rest of you are going to die. Um, and here's the point of all of it. Right? David concludes that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly, so all the people who are here, uh, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. So brothers and sisters, if we remember one thing today, Remember that God is a faithful God to his people, and he saves them, not with sword and spear. And so we find ourselves, right, the, the climax of the story is where David pronounces these words. And so we see now, the Philistine arose and came and drew, and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, so not a sword and a spear, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Uh, there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and drew his sword and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So in an instant, hundreds of pounds of armor, feet and feet of height, and immeasurable arrogance, tons of weaponry means nothing. God indeed comes to the hand of David, or, sorry, God indeed comes to the aid of David, and before you know it, Goliath is laying face down on the ground with his head cut off like the Philistine god in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. And so this is, I mean, the, the description of this is almost shorter than the, their like smack talk that goes back and forth. It's that, it's that quickly that, um, uh, that David, um, clearly by God's hand, because you know, some people have tried to explain this away, like Goliath must have taken off his helmet or something like that. E either way, I mean, the, the, the ability to hit a rushing warrior coming at you and kill him in one shot uh, when such stakes are on the line it has to be to uh, God's credit that he has helped David here. Um, and so, uh, interestingly, what Hannah sang in verse 9 of chapter 2, as, as 1 Samuel has come to pass. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, 
but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. And so suddenly, here we're seeing Genesis 3 come into full bore in this text. So David comes as this seed of Eve, literally bruising and crushing the head of this serpent warrior, Goliath, as he cuts it off. God has promised to send a deliverer to save his people, and God's people all see that he has done so. So people might have thought, you think about David defeat, or sorry, Saul defeating Nahash, defeating the serpent, and they might have been excited once they realized, oh, is Saul, like Saul's our king, he just defeated the serpent, like is this what uh, God was promising in Genesis 3.15? Then you see basically Saul is very disappointing after uh, chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. In fact, Saul behaves a lot more like Adam, where he's filled with excuses and he says, like, you know, like Adam says, the woman you gave me, or gave me this fruit. And then, and then he says, oh, Samuel, you didn't come in time, so I offered the sacrifice. Or the people made me not obey your word. So very quickly, uh, Saul goes from looking like the promised seed of the woman to, nope, he's just another disappointing Adam. Um, but now David comes along and does something more because he's not just won a military victory here. We've already seen that the stakes are a spiritual one as well. And so we see that God's anointed one has won against the forces of darkness. However, um, even David does not do this completely. He hasn't decisively dealt with sin and death and Satan, which are some of the other consequences of what happened in Genesis 3. While his victory is an amazing and an absolute triumph, it actually still leaves us longing for more, which we find is given to us in verses like uh, 13 through 15 of Colossians 2, where it tells us, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, so there's the death language, with him having forgiven all our trespasses, our sins, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so it further points out here that David is not the main person we are to identify ourselves with in this story. He is the particularly anointed one of God. And so while we were hopeless, so we were more like the cowering Israelites or perhaps spiteful Eliab or unhoping Saul, Christ came and lived a true life of faith to deliver us from sin, death, and the devil. We did not deliver ourselves on our own power or merit. If we tried to do this, we would fail. But Christ has faithfully gone before us and won the battle to the glory of God. And so we look, though, what happens when the Israelites see David conquer the Philistine champion. These men who are previously cowering, they look and see the Philistines not fulfilling their promise to simply surrender and be servants. They rise up with a shout and pursue the Philistines all the way back to their capital cities. Um, the Philistines are totally routed because of God sending an anointed leader. So just as David, as Saul completely saved from the Ammonites in chapter 11 and the Ammonites, they're not left with two of them together, the Philistines have been uh, defeated in even more dramatic fashion. And so now 
um, for us, we can trust in Christ to continue to do the work in his power by his spirit of winning the battle in our own lives against sin and conquering the evil one by bringing souls to Christ. Consider that he has already won the decisive victory over sin. And we see that uh, uh, even foreshadowed in knowing that uh, David defeated Goliath. Um, but he calls us to make disciples of all the ends of the earth and that not even the gates of hell will stand against his church. And so be encouraged today that Christ has won the victory and then you can go forth, therefore, in faith to declare what he has done. The faithful king delivers his people from a powerful, defiant enemy, despite discouragement, to the glory of God, and now from humble origins. So this last point I have is rather brief, but I do believe um, this part of the text here is meant to emphasize this point. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Saul knows David, at least to some extent, right? He's his shield bearer. He's his musician. Um, and he knows a little bit about David's background. But this event has caused him to see David with new eyes. It's as if he kind of expects maybe David's been holding out on him. And like David comes from this long line of mighty warriors um, but David simply replies that he's a shepherd who's a son of a shepherd. Uh, and yet now he's going to be elevated to one of the highest states in all of Israel because of what he's done. Remember, he's going to be married to the king's daughter, riches, family free in all of Israel. So consider with me some more words of Hannah's song. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Once again, we see how God works. God is in the business of showing his power and glory by exalting the humble and raising them up. When he does this, there can be no doubt that it is him who is the one who is working. So the Bible tells us this is true about Christ in his earthly ministry as well. He humbled himself when he came to earth, and now after winning victory over sin and death, our faithful king is highly exalted, and he is on his throne. Listen to me with a little bit of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, in, in subjection to Christ. But we see him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels when he came to earth, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so even here today, we know that Christ has achieved a victory, but we do not see that full victory either in our own lives or in the world. But because um, 
of these promises, because of the, even what God has done with David, we know that Christ has won just as decisively as David did. And one day Christ will conquer all of his enemies. So that should give us the strength to fight and trust in him day by day, as well as long for that coming day when Christ will have all things in subjection to him as the good and faithful king of God's people. And so this is where we can find ourselves in David's story, though, as well. We were once nobodies. We were once enemies of God. But if you are sitting here today and know the faithful king has delivered you and made you one of his people, you know that you are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and he is equipping you even now to do his work and fight in his strength. May we first and foremost see our King Jesus, who has gone before us, and then may we follow him boldly, for all our days ahead. Faithful king delivers his people from a powerful and defiant enemy, despite discouragement, to the glory of God and from humble origins. Would you please pray with me? God, we see um, how you work. You bring those who are low, you equip them, you help them by the power of your spirit um, that they might bring glory to you. I pray that you uh, would help us to see with eyes of faith that you have done this with Christ and, with, and one day he will return. The book of Revelation tells us that he will defeat that serpent, that dragon, Satan, once and for all. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Um, you are fixing what was broken um, by sinful man and you have sent your anointed king, you sent David to give us a great and beautiful taste of this. You sent your son Christ so that we might see in full what you have done and what you are about. I pray you would help us to see all the more that we might love him and rejoice in him as we go from here today. We pray all these things in your son Christ's precious name. Amen.